all we got. One goddamn hit. You can't say goddamn on here. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, welcome to another episode of Golf, Drinking, and Life. My name is Colin McKern. I'm your host. I'm a PGA professional and a Callaway staff member here in Mobile, Alabama. I'm with my co-host, my brother, Corey McKern, who is a professional opera singer and a professor at the University of West Florida. Big Core, what's going on, bub? Oh, well, uh, living the dream. Happy to be back. My second week home and uh, kind of getting reacclimated. Getting caught up on work, family obligations, household chores, you know, all the exciting stuff. Good. Everything good with your kids? I know uh, Quinn had a little bit of a sickness. Well, yeah. So this <laughs> this was my whole point during COVID that, uh, you know, people aren't super excited about sharing germs when you tell them your kid has the stomach flu. And uh, so I got home on Monday night and uh, pretty late, <clears throat> like 4.15, but I left L.A., I got up at 3.30, got on an airplane, flew back to Pensacola. This is a week ago, last Monday. Uh, my boss and dear friend, uh, Sheila Murphy, was doing a recital at the university. So we got a babysitter, went up here, we went out afterwards. a long, long day. And when I got home, Charlotte, my daughter, four-year-old daughter, made me promise I would wake her up. So I did. I said goodnight. And I heard Quinn saying, Mom, Mom. And... Uh, I walk in his room. I think he wants to say goodnight, and he's in the middle of projectile vomiting like the exorcist. Uh, and it went all between his mattress and bed frame and then pooled <laughs> on the hardwood floor underneath the bed. I mean, it looked like just someone had dumped three gallons of vomit <laughs> under the bed. I'm not laughing it's, at you. I'm laughing with you because I've been there. So, I mean, it was brutal. And uh, poor guy's like sick. And I'm, I mean, I literally had to take all the stuff off the bed obviously i mean i had the mattress the box spring and the frame like sitting up on its side just dealing with this mess like you needed harvey Keitel from pulp fiction the cleaner the cleaner uh, you needed the cleaner we needed the cleaner like bleach mops <laughs> parts, duct tape um and so then uh chandra got it and then i got it so that was my first uh foray back into domestic bliss you get off you know you have a matinee and then you're at a wine bar in santa monica california and then uh 24 hours later you're cleaning up three gallons of vomit so so my question is this did you beat him for not throwing up in the proper place did you say you don't ever throw up between the wall and the bed man no i don't say beat i would say shamed him you know? <laughs> <laughs> you, always, you gotta throw up into the open space dude yeah, like just lean all the way over the bed or make it to the bathroom would be ideal. It's uh, uh, it's funny, though, the way kids do that. I, th I think, number one, because they, they, they don't uh, necessarily understand what's happening when it's happening. But I think there's also a, an inherent um, mechanism that makes them not want to do that into an open space. Yeah, that's you, right. You know what I mean? I mean, your yeah. first uh, instinct would be to do that someplace where somebody can't see it or not that he was obviously purposely trying to do it between the bed and the wall, but, yeah, yeah. but, but you know what I mean? It's, it's like uh human nature to, to like, I'm not going to throw up in the middle of the room. Like, you, yeah, that's right. You, uh, you, know, you don't think about it until later. And then it's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, yeah, yeah, that's awful. I, I can't. I can only imagine after after what was a, a really long day for you as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it was good. Uh, all I kept thinking that was, uh, man, thank God I'm back. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Did it ever occur to you to just um, walk out and get in your car and drive off, pretend like you weren't there when that happened? Yeah. Uh, it occurred to me to just do a shoulder roll and dive right out the window <laughs> and then keep going. Um, but if I could, I could make a coffee table book of times like when I've been in Miami, you know, uh, sitting in Coral Gables, sipping a Chardonnay in the sunshine while Chander was trapped at home with Quinn, who was like three at the time in Nashville, we lived and there was an ice storm. So she couldn't leave the house for four days. And then Quinn got the stomach flu. So, uh, yeah, traveling when you start to have kids becomes different because all the uh, all the heavy lifting then is uh, left to the person left at home. So, well, number one, I'm not sure we want to see a coffee table book of you in Miami because that floral thong that you uh, love so much is not that flattering. <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> number yeah. one. So let me do some housekeeping here. We got, uh, thank all our listeners. We are now in 24 countries and uh, just over 430 cities. So please continue to uh, share and follow the show. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Colin McKern, and you can email the show golfdrinkinglife at gmail.com. We love hearing from our listeners. Um, we especially want to thank the people who have shared their stories and struggles with alcohol and addiction. Um, it's always good to hear from the listeners and good to hear that we're um, touching people, hopefully in a positive uh, manner. Um, we will have new episodes out every Thursday morning. Uh, this is episode two of season two we're into here. Um, we are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Google Podcasts, basically wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I want to do a shout out today to uh, Puerto Rico. I think they're new on the list. Um, this week, I'm not so sure you know, there was a PGA Tour event in Puerto Rico last week. Who knows? Maybe somebody down there was listening to it. I'm not sure how that came online, but uh, welcome, nice. Puerto Rico. Um, if you have not listened to our podcast before, um, this is season two. Um, season one, episodes one and two kind of uh, kind of give our backstory a little bit. My backstory of, of being recovered for nearly two years now from an addiction, a severe addiction to alcohol and uh, my recovery since then. So um, uh, refer to those episodes if you kind of want to get the backstory. I think most of the episodes stand on their own of, of me and you just basically doing some stupid-ass bullshitting. Uh, does that sum it up pretty well? <laughs> I'd say so. A couple of uh, takeaways from your intro. You said we uh, touch people positively. Put <laughs> that on your card. Colin McCurd, touching people positively. I, I, uh, knew, I knew you were going to catch that. I caught it. <laughs> I caught it as it came out of my mouth. Very generous of us to touch so many people, but in a positive way. Um, so, you know, that, that's, a, that, that's a pretty good segue into how easy it is to be taken out of context, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. You know? Um, you know, if you take that one sentence from that conversation and stick it out there and says, Colin McKern, host of the GDL podcast, says in his discussion about kids vomiting, <laughs> yeah, he likes to touch people positively. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Secondly, quoted. Uh, I think it's always funny. I almost feel like you're making up at the beginning. You're like, we're in four million countries. <laughs> And seven billion people have listened to our podcast. Uh, we've almost full, and then South America, we're coming right along. Um, 
you know. So <laughs> how dare you? I would never make any of that up. <laughs> we got a new um, listener from Nova Scotia. No, that's one of those things that's you really can't make that up. If I was making it up, I'd be like, we're in five countries and like a couple hundred cities, you know. Yeah, good point. Um, so yeah. Um <laughs> All right, so last week we talked about Phil Mickelson. Uh, this week we have the Players Championship going on. So the talk about Phil Mickelson and the Super Golf League back by the Saudis and all that talk we had last week. We finally heard from PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan yesterday as he did his annual State of the Union for the PGA Tour from the Players Championship, which he does every year. So this wasn't anything new. It just happened to be this is the first time we've heard from him um, kind of since all this Phil Mickelson stuff, it was it was a little bit interesting because he was pretty. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? He was pretty firm in his comments, um, and he was he, you know he was very thankful to all the the players who have came out and supported the PGA Tour, which is you know pretty much unanimous. All the top players came out and uh, and came out on the side of the PGA tour through, through all this. He was a little bit, um, he, he, he was a little bit guarded in his comments about Phil and whether or not Phil is suspended or not. Right. From tour. He has not spoken to Phil Mickelson. Him and Phil Mickelson have not spoken since all this. Phil has said that he's taking some time away. Um, the reporters tried and deferral, um, several different ways to kind of ask Monahan if Phil Mickelson was suspended. His only comment was, and, th- and this is the tour's policy, they don't comment on player suspensions and um, punishments. They never have. Right. Um, very rarely do they do you even know that a player is suspended. Generally, if a player is strangely taking time away from the game for something odd, um, there's a good chance that they're suspended if they're not hurt. Um, right. I'm not saying that's the case here. He he left the ball in Phil's court as kind of it's up to Phil to reach out to him. It didn't sound like Phil could just sign up for a Champions Tour or PGA Tour event next week and show up. Right. I don't know whether that's the case or not. It may be just simply a phone call. But um, I, I his, his uh, comments were pretty were were, were pretty good. And, and the the tour is in um, you know the tour is in a great spot right now. Uh, the the one thing he said is maybe they could be a little more transparent on some some of the things, but he said I think that's true in all businesses, which I agree with him. the uh, The purse this week for the Players Championship is twenty million dollars. First place is three point six million. Second place is two point two million. I think third place is one point four million. Tenth place is five hundred and thirty-five thousand. Dang! And if you make the cut, you get uh, forty-three thousand. Is, is did I hear this is the biggest purse in history? It is, yes. But it, but it's you know it's not that far off from the normal purses, really. Right. So you know the 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 the, the tour is doing pretty well. I think last week I had mentioned that um, that when Payne Stewart won the the Bay Hill Invitational, they showed him with that. Uh, dry erase check or whatever. And it was like 108,000. Right. And that wasn't that long ago. That was in the early nineties or the late eighties, which, uh, Oh, I guess that is a long time ago. Now I'm getting old. 
Yeah. Okay, Boomer. That's just a couple years ago. It was just 30 years ago. Yeah. But that's still a huge increase, obviously. Um, You know, the the PGA Tour is a whole different – it's a whole different manner than other sports because – so the the guy that wrote this article about the purse, his comment was that last place got 43000 Well, that's not true. The last person to make the cut gets 43000 Half the field doesn't even get paid. Right. So it's a little different than other sports. You, you, you certainly have to perform to make money. Now, obviously, there's contracts and side contracts and all kinds of ways that players are making money. But that's a point of diminishing return, obviously, if you're a player that's barely making cuts and are not known, you're not making near as much side revenue on endorsements and what as the players who are already making the cuts and rank top 10 in the world and all that stuff. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different than other sports. And I don't know, you know, I'd like to say that that's where this idea for a super golf league comes from is to protect all the players, but that's not really where it comes from. Right. The, the idea of the super golf league is to take the 20 or 50 or 30 best players of the world, and make them richer and also make them guaranteed to make certain amounts of money. It's, it's not, it's not helping the guys who are missing the cuts. No, so, you know, it, there is, I mean, there is a philosophy um, that when they talked about in the NCAA athletics, this transfer portal, um, I think a correlation could be made here. A lot of people were against the transfer portal because you recruit a kid out of high school. You spend a lot of man hours and money recruiting someone. And then you spend two years with your whole coaching staff investing in this person and getting them to a point where now they're good enough to market their skills to, you know, let's say you're at a uh, middle of the pack SEC school and you've uh, gotten yourself to a level, you know, top 10 player in the country. Now suddenly you can go to Duke uh, with no penalty. So a lot of people are against that because you're taking the time to develop someone and then not seeing the results. And I would say the PGA tour is similar, you know, no matter what you say, very few people come into the PGA Tour other than Tiger and a couple others as bona fide superstars on their own. You know, you spend years uh, with PGA Tour marketing, PGA Tour's system, and then you get yourself to a point where you're at the top of the PGA Tour. Now suddenly you want to uh, take your talents to Saudi Arabia and get paid a much bigger payday and leave the rest of those guys behind. I, I see the pushback against that. Yeah, it's just, it's, um, I, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. In my mind, I don't understand how the business model works exactly. I just don't see how it's sustainable. Um, because like I said, you know, even if you nail down the top 10 or 20 players in the world, that's an ever-changing thing. So a year from now, your product doesn't look the same as it looked when you signed these 20 players. Yeah. Um, you know, the PGA Tour you can say whatever you want about how hard the PGA tour is to get on. And they're, 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 they're pushing people through the corn Ferry tour now, and that's fine. But the, 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 the bottom line is almost every week you learn who new players are that you've never heard before that either win or come close to winning. And then some of them become stars. Some of them don't, but you eliminate that whole, that whole scenario from happening in a super golf league where everybody's pre-signed, don't you? Yeah, of course. 
your um, Cinderella story, so to speak, goes away pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, you know, you were talking about the college and the transfer portal and all that. And, and that brings up a whole nother conversation that we're in the midst of in college athletics with the um, name, image and likeness and all that stuff. And I, and I think the real thing that moved the needle towards the at student athletes on that side was exactly what you were talking. The scenario you were talking about earlier happened all the time, but it happened the opposite way. It happened with coaches. Players yeah. signed with schools because of a coach to play for that coach, to play under that coach's system. And if the coach felt like next year they were going somewhere else for double the money, they did no problem, no penalties, no waiting, no anything. So it didn't protect the players very well. Right. I'm not so sure that this name, image, and likeness man is going to I, – I, I don't know what it's going to do to college athletics, but it, 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 it's seemingly it's not going to make it more fair. No, but it, it's, it's better. It's better for the players, especially the star players. But um, but it's certainly you would think going to se- separate the Goliaths who are already the Goliaths more so from your um, smaller schools. It's 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 funny because. Um... I never have any problem with that. There is no fair. Um, well, I agree. I do agree with that. Well, I say that because there's always an advantage. You know, if, you, if you're if you one of the top five players in the country and you can choose between uh, Duke and North Carolina, and I would love to say Indiana, but that's not realistic anymore. Oh, don't even get me started on Indiana. You know, then you, you're already receiving different benefits than – other college kids. And I'm not sure why in a country where we value more than anything, uh, personal work ethic and talents and ingenuity in order to make a life for yourself. I'm not sure why we cap that off. Suddenly college students who could be worth millions of dollars should be grateful to get books and tuition to business class in this day and age, while the TV rights for the NCAA tournament are worth billions. You know, I mean, I, I always oh, use the analogy. I went to Indiana University for grad school for voice. And uh, it's a big school. So automatically I had a full scholarship and a stipend. Um, and that's at the graduate level, which is a little different. But I, I received much more benefits at that school than I would have going to a smaller school with a less scholarship. But I auditioned. They gave it to me. I also signed with an agent while I was in grad school and did two or three professional contracts where I got paid. Uh, pretty decently um, while I was in school. And no one says, oh, that's not fair. If you're doing that, someone at, you know, a small school somewhere else should have the same opportunity. Well, that's not the way it works um, for everyone. No, I agree. And, 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 and really what's going on is, is the, um, the NCA and the coaches and the conferences don't want the players having this much power. <laughs> that's yeah, what's yeah. going on. Sure. I mean, you know, the um the schools feel like they're the product even though the players actually are. Right. A uh, little bit different college maybe, but um but yeah, that I mean that's we all know that's the real reason. And you're right. There is no fair. Um Alabama has an advantage over even the lower rung SEC schools, even the me- medium rung SEC schools. Yeah, that's right. Just because they're Alabama, their training facilities, their coach, their number of national champions, all that. Did you get to watch any of Bay Hill last week at all? Uh, well, no, I did not. I was uh, 
otherwise occupied, which is not a great answer when you host a golf podcast. Well, you know, we're getting into that time of year now. Bay Hill was fun to watch because the course was really, really difficult. Um, they had the rough grown up really uh, high and the and it was really windy. It's been windy around here and it's been windy around the southeast for the last couple of weeks. And so it was super windy. The greens were baked out and they were a little bit firm. I want to say either nine or ten under was leading after the second round. And, uh, man, those guys just backed up on Sunday. And Scotty Scheffler ended up winning, and this is his third win in three events and his first two wins ever on tour. He is now fifth in the world. So um, so it's amazing how these guys, even though Scotty has played on a Ryder Cup and he's had, obviously, a ton of PGA Tour success, all of a sudden, boom, he wins two out of three weeks, and now he's fifth in the world. Um, again, seemingly not a guy that they would have signed for the Super Golf League. And now right. in, a, in a matter of three weeks, he's number five in the world. So right. um, I, I still, I can't wrap my, my my mind around how that Super Golf League works long term. And of course, in their defense, I never saw any fine print on it, nor do I think anybody else. I don't know how much of outside of the idea phase that was. Where were all these tournaments going to be played? Well, I don't know the answer to that. I I, I don't think there was very I, I, no nobody ever saw any specifics on this stuff. So I don't know how far outside the planning stage it was, or you know, I there's rumors that some players had some non disclosure agreements already signed, and that they had lawyers working on stuff. But I have no idea. Because that's I the mean, other thing. I mean, as much as we want to see uh, the world's best golfers compete against each other. In in the United States, in the PJ Tour, a lot of the golf courses are also the star. Um, yes, for sure. And so it's it's always odd when you know watching the European PJ Tour or um, even some of those world golf events that are uh, overseas. It has a different feel to it. You know, we like to watch Pebble Beach and Bay Hill and. Um, during the players, you know, same course every year in Ponte Vedra. Um, so players championship one. this week. That's a good segue. Yeah. Um, speaking of one of the uh, most fun courses to probably watch. And there's a good chance for people our age. If you haven't played TPC of Sawgrass, you have played it probably 5,000 times on PlayStation or Xbox or whatever your game console of choice was. Um, so everybody really is familiar with the golf course. And of course you have the famous 17th hole Island green with pretty fun 137 yard par three to watch. <laughs> yeah. Um, with, with really a pretty big green. It's just the fact that the green is surrounded by water. So it gives these guys fits, man, especially, um, especially on Sunday. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's it's really fun to watch. I've enjoyed the um, the marketing leading into this. They've got uh, um, Fleetwood Mac or Stevie Nicks uh, "Edge of 17 song playing as they're showing these guys hit shots in the water on seventeen. Oh, so nice! That's uh, clever. Yeah, pretty good marketing move. So um, pumped for that this week. Um, it's a little too early in the season. I really don't have a feel as far as picking a player. Roy McElroy played well last week, at least until the weekend. Uh, I'd like to see McElroy play good. He's won at the players before. Um, you know, McElroy just seems his his reputation has become that he just just kind of lacks this killer instinct and he can't quite get it done. And and uh, I don't I don't know if if that's 
the actual case, but it certainly appears that way sometimes. But man, yeah. golf, golf is a friggin' hard game. These guys teeing it up every week, competing against the best players in the world for the most money in the world. And the guy finishes, you know, in the top 10 or 15, top 10 or 15, and just gets brutalized for not playing well on the weekend. So, well, I'll tell you, it, it, golf's a very um, interesting sport. I can relate in some ways to the lifestyle of a golfer because just when we were talking about um, these big purses, but if you don't make the cut, you get zero money. But think about that for a second. You know, a PJ Tour uh, pro has to pay all of their own expenses. So you've flown yourself, maybe flown your caddy, maybe they flew themselves. You've rented a house, all that stuff. And uh, all those expenses going out, and then you're not making one dollar. Um, and for Rory McIlroy, if that happened, that's fine. A lot of these guys that are, um, you know, either new to the tour or going down the ladder of the tour, it's I'm sure it's tight. Then when it becomes tight, uh, the pressure is probably really not enjoyable. You know, if you have to stand in the middle of the 18th green and knock it on and get a par to make the cut. Can you imagine? I'm sure you can imagine, but for the rest of us, imagine the pressure of that shot and trying to hit it well. And, uh, golf's a little different than my sport because, um, my sport, my, um, chosen profession, because what we do is subjective. Someone hears you and they either like you or they don't, and then they hire you. But in golf, you actually have to shoot a number. You know, you don't just go show them your swing, uh, and try to make a good impression. And they say, okay, come play golf and we'll give you money. Um, you have to shoot the number every weekend. Uh, and it doesn't matter what you've done in the past. That's it. So that's a that's a pressure-filled life. And to make it more challenging, the number changes every week. Yeah, that's right. What was a good number one week's not a good number the next. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly an interesting way to make a living. Um, and, the, and the expenses, as you know, just from the traveling you just did, uh, rack up pretty quickly, um, especially where these guys are playing. I yeah. mean, they're, they're playing in big cities and big big courses. So it's, you're not doing anything on the cheap. Um, no, for absolutely. Sure. <laughs> they showed, I don't know if I mentioned this in the last show or not, but they showed um, when the um, tour was at Pebble Beach a couple weeks ago, that the caddies were, they showed a couple of pictures of some of the caddies that were in hotel rooms, like four, four of them staying together in a hotel room with cots and pullouts and whatever they could do. Sure. Cause they're staying in Carmel or wherever. And it's Pell beach pro-am week and Carmel's already expensive. So you can only imagine what rooms are going for that week. If you can even get one. Right. So, yeah. So it's, it's interesting. So uh, uh, speaking of, of tour players, Heath Slocum, our, our, uh, my friend and our buddy to the show who was on, um, episode three last year, um, played in the, there was a PGA tournament opposite Bay Hill this week at, uh, in Puerto Rico and Heath was in the field and he didn't play bad. He shot one over missed the cut by two shots. Um, I'm sure I I've chatted with him a little bit since I know he wasn't happy to not make the cut, but he hasn't been playing in a lot of events. I think he's played in one corn corn fairy tour event this year. Um, he will start getting in more corn t- corn fairy tour <laughs> events going forward. I hate the name of that tour. I'm sorry. Rolls corn off fairy. the tongue like butter. No Golly, man. Um, can you change it to fireball tour or something? I can say fireball. 
just can't drink it. Um, so anyway, he, he will start getting in more events now that he's 48. We've, I think we've talked about this on the show before, but he, he has exempt status on the champions tour when he turns 50 for two years. Um, depending on how he plays, I think he has a minimum of two years, but when you turn 48, if you don't already, if you don't still have status on tour or the corn Ferry tour, the, the PGA tour gives you um, some kind of conditional status on the corn Ferry tour in order to get your game ready. Oh, that's great. So really what we, we need to try to do is have Heath back on here again soon. And I'm sure he'll be happy to do it um, because there's, there's a whole different dynamic he's involved in now being on the corn ferry tour, which is mostly, it's not mostly, there's a lot of journeymen out there still trying to make their way back to the PGA tour, but he he's in a little different situation than last time he was on the corn ferry tour. And now that he's trying to get his game sharp for the champions tour. And you know, there's guys out there that are, you know, in their mid, mid to early twenties that are thinking, why is this old guy got in the field again and knocked out so-and-so who's trying to get into Vince to start his career. And these damn old guys are taking up our spots, trying to get back on the champions tour. Right. There's a, there's a whole different dynamic there that would be kind of fun to talk to him about and, and dive into. I'm ready to get started. He plays in um, the Corn Ferry event in Lafayette, Louisiana next week at La Triomphe, which is where we won the Sunbelt Conference championship our senior year. Um, and he also won as an individual. So that we got a little college golf history there. He's also, I'm sure there's been a long running, um, nationwide Nike tour, corn Ferry tour event in Lafayette at that golf course. So I'm sure nice. he's, he's played there before as well in, in professional events, but, but kind of a neat venue. It's a really neat golf course. So, um, we look forward to kind of following him this year and, and hoping that, uh, that, you know, I, I, I know he's using this as a, springboard to get his game ready but it'd be nice to make a few dollars along the way i'm sure uh, yeah of course obviously tiger woods gets nominated into the golf world hall world golf hall of fame today i believe and his daughter is his daughter sam is doing the induction um intro i believe um so that should be interesting yeah that's really cool I would, uh, it'll be interesting as the Masters comes along here in April to see if Tiger's on property, goes to the Champions Dinner, maybe plays in the par three competition. Told that to somebody yesterday and they kind of said, nah, he wouldn't do that, would he? And I thought, well, why, why not? You know, well, a little chance for him to compete a little bit and be around Augusta. And just, I mean, you know, all of us. You know, if you're trying to make your way back to something, I know the par three, nine hole par three contest may seem uh, trivial, but for him, it might be a big deal. Not not even to win it, but just to go out there and be with the guys and play a little bit competitively anyway. Um, but uh, then again, I don't know. You know, I don't know how much it, it seems like he can almost be a distraction if he did something like that <laughs> as well. Well, I don't know. You know, it's it's an interesting question. And I said, uh, you know, when Simone Biles was going through all that stuff in the Olympics last year, I had this thought. I thought, you know, it's it's hard enough to be the best gymnast in the history of the world for one day, much less every day you do it. You know, she had that thing where she was couldn't flip, whatever. And I feel like Tiger, you know, it's in some ways we were surprised that he didn't break Jack Nicklaus's record. But in another way, he played so well, so intensely for such a period of time that, I mean, even without all of his off course issues and accidents and anything else, I mean, it's just hard to sustain that level, um, that level of intensity, 
that level of physicality, that level of um, mental strength, that level of physical consistency. And so, and, and, and all that's gone now. You know, Tiger no longer is the Tiger that intimidates everyone just by being in the locker room. I'm sure there's still some of that. But everyone now would just love to see Tiger Woods at the par three and doing some, you know, I mean, it'd be awesome if Tiger Woods were an on-course interviewer or uh, I'm sure he wouldn't do that. But, you know, his uh, it's clear his his greatest days of competing are behind him. At some point, he's going to have to make a transition. Why not now? Yeah, I agree. It'd be great to have him around the game up close and personal in any way possible. Yeah, and if if it's little things like playing in the par three competition at Augusta, I, I think he will play PGA Tour events going forward. Who knows? He may even win one. He's an exceptional athlete. Yes, he had a broken leg. We saw videos of him hitting golf balls last year. At the end of the year, he looks his leg looked weak, but it looks like he was hitting it fine. I think it's going to be more of a um, um, walking walking issue stuff like that so i think you'll see him certainly he already played a limited schedule as it was if he comes back you're gonna see a very limited schedule Uh, but i will see him in a full field event again teeing it up um for how long we'll see that i don't know i i would i would think that if he had limited success um at the beginning that he wouldn't he's he's not gonna flounder around out there too long if he sees um it if he sees it heading into a better direction i think you're likely to see more i wouldn't put it past him to win another event um although it would be difficult with with all these young guys now um there's just so many and i i I think it would be it would be highly unlikely for him to win another major but who knows augusta's a whole different ball game jack did it when he was uh 46 and even though tiger is almost that age um athletes are are in a little bit different shape at age 46 than they were when jack won the masters at age 46 you know it's it's funny because we used to have the vhs tape of the 1986 <laughs> and 1987 masters yes we did when jack nicholas highlights the highlights that were highlights. sent to me from some golf magazine so it wasn't just like we recorded on tv it was like the actual highlights with like Vern lundquist doing yeah it that's or, right um or uh yeah yeah well they but, were cool tapes it was awesome but uh, no offense to our uh, wonderful father, Jim McKern, but when Jack Nicholas won the Masters in 1986 at age 46, which I'm about to be next week, he looked <laughs> like our dad's age right now. Yes, and our he dad did. is 74. Um, yeah, so, so I can't tell if you're if you're um, if you're insulting Jack Nicholas or insulting our father or both. Well, I, well, now I can't say. Well, I'm or, clearly or if, I'm insulting Jack Nicholas. <laughs> you know, now, listen, Dad, you're a handsome man. You look youthful as ever, uh, but you don't look 46. Take that in the spirit which it's intended. And, Maybe uh, this will be the one episode he doesn't listen to. Yeah, right away. So sorry, Dad. You look uh, great, but. No, I, I know what you're saying. Jack Nicholas looked old back then. It, not only because we were. We were kids at the time, but because people just didn't dress as young and didn't take care of themselves quite as well back then. It, you know what I mean? I mean, there's a reason why life expectancy has gotten longer through the years and people taking better care of themselves. Um, at least that's what I'm trying to tell myself. 
Yeah, he would look like me if I went and put on plaid pants and pulled them up too high and a yellow shirt. And had hair down just about halfway over your ears. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah. But anyway, it would be lovely to see Tiger um, a little bit more. So, Corey, you have still not been to Augusta, correct? No, I have not. Um, Which is certainly on my bucket list is to get you to Augusta. I, I continue to enter the uh, Masters um, lottery every year. That is how you go about getting tickets to the Masters without paying $8 million for them. Um, and, but I have not got them in years. And if, if we, we, me, you, and Dad all need to be getting in that every year. Because if we can just get two friggin' tickets, um, I, I get in most years with my PGA badge. We're, um, but but I can only get myself in, so it doesn't really help you guys much. Well, could I just stand outside the fence and you can stand out? Well, the problem is, I would say I could text you pictures and stuff, but you're not allowed to have your phone on you in Augusta, which is which is kind of a cool thing. Yeah. Um, wow. Didn't you tell me that it, the the grounds are so nice, you feel like you wouldn't even want to spit on the ground? Correct. When we went the first time I was in college, it was probably, I can't remember if it was my freshman or sophomore year. Back then you could show up during the practice rounds, just pay at the gate. It was like 15 bucks and get in. And um, back in college, we used to dip some, which is a disgusting habit. I can't believe I ever did it. But I can remember being at Augusta on hole one and putting a dip in my mouth. And I had a cup that I was spitting in because I didn't want to spit on the ground. I mean, it's literally like walking on carpet. Yeah, and for those who don't know, those who aren't from the greater southeast, dip is a form of tobacco that you put between your bottom teeth and your uh, bottom gum, and uh, and then you have to spit it. So not, you know, my whole uh, my whole um, experience in dipping was not very good. I was not a very good dipper. I'd have that crap all over my mouth. I mean, be swallowing it, it's awful. I'm not sure what I was thinking. That's just so I covered this before, but I'm sure no one remembers <laughs> when I when I came to your uh, dorm room when I was a senior in high school. I came to visit you at South for the first time. I think, uh, by the way, first time I ever had an alcoholic beverage. Thank you, Colin. You're um, welcome. Corrupting my youth, um, and uh, all downhill ever since. I was sleeping on a couch in that that dorm room which i can't even remember the setup it seemed like 14 people lived there well um, it was uh it was a suite like you so you had four guys with a bathroom in the middle and then you had two two rooms on each side with beds on both sides but what we had done on that one side was we had taken we had built a loft so it was basically bunk beds on one side and then the other side of the desk we had like a living room with a couch and a chair and a coffee table and that's where you right. were sleeping on the I can still remember it was an old like plaid looking couch and I slept there all night and I kept smelling this horrendous smell. And I was like, God, what is well, this place smells horrible? And when I woke up the next morning, there was like a bucket half full of dip spit just open to the elements. Um Yeah, that so. was it was not the cleanest place as some college uh, students places or not. Um, I can remember a, a similar incident in that exact living room with um, a 32 ounce Wendy's cup. And back then they were paper cups oh. and it was three fourths full of dip spit from numerous amounts of people. And I was wearing white polo shorts. And about the time I had that thing over my shorts sitting on the couch to spit in at the 
paper bottom broke out of that cup. <laughs> oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's awful. 30, I'd say roughly 28 ounces of uh, random dip spit went all over my white shorts, and it was disgusting, yes. All right, Core Opera. I know you're still sitting on a whole bunch of stories. Yeah. Um, I know you, you probably know, don't have time to delve into them again today, but what you got for us this week? Well, it's interesting, um, you know, because as life goes on, I used to make my living mostly singing, and now I make my living mostly teaching. And now that I'm moving on to artistic director in Pensacola, I won't be, I'll be on a different side of the business, um, focusing on the company here, uh, artistic planning, fundraising, um, all that stuff. So I, I don't know that I'll be singing that much anymore. And uh, this this gig that I just did in New York and L.A. and on the West Coast was a really great way to um, I certainly don't think it'll be my last gig, but maybe one of them. And, uh, you know, it's just it's sort of a trip back in time, kind of to my former life in a way. Number one, it was very interesting being in New York for almost a month. I haven't lived there for 10 years, almost 12 years now. And uh, so being back in the city and living that life was interesting for sure. And it just the the amount of work and intensity it takes to get myself to the level to where I feel comfortable. You know, you go from your office in Pensacola to suddenly living in Little Italy and taking the train to Brooklyn to rehearse every day with people that are still in this full time, really excellent director and conductor. And suddenly you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, I got to. I know what I'm doing, but I really got to be on my A game. That was kind of fun to kind of work at that level and that intensity again. And the rehearsals were um, were intense. I mean, it was a pretty – everyone was working really hard. Um, so it was kind of great in that sense. And I did notice, you know, maybe when you are older as a golfer, like my memory isn't quite as sharp. You know, I can study something, but it's a new role to me, and I noticed that I might make – a few more mistakes the first couple times through, which is sort of a new um, situation in the last several years. And I think a lot of it has to do with just, there's a lot more going on in my life, a lot more in my mind. So memorizing opera is not at the forefront these days. Um, well, I, I hate to break it to you. You've always been an absent-minded dipshit. <laughs> well, I seem to be able to cover that at some point, but my true nature, Colin, has returned. No, I kid you because I've heard golfers um, um, say the same thing. That not only physically is it tougher for them as they get older, it's harder for them to concentrate for the amount of time the way they need to as they get older as well. And when I say yeah. older, I mean our age, late 40s, right. early yeah, yeah. 50s. I mean, you know, to do something at a very high level, I mean, once you're getting toward 50, it's a little different mentally. And, uh, and not unlike a golfer, you know, it was a really, uh, speaking honestly, it was really good for me to do this gig because I have sort of mixed uh, emotions about being a professional singer because I loved it for so long. But I had one turning point when Quinn was, we had just moved from Nashville back to Pensacola. Chandler was going to work at Pensacola Opera again. And we were staying at the time. We had a, We owned a house, but someone was living there. So we were living in a guest house of a very uh, good friend of ours who's an opera donor. But it was a one bedroom guest house is beautiful, but a little small for the three of us. And uh, this was in 
August. And in January, I was supposed to go to an opera company that I worked at many, many times, including under the the current uh, regime. And I was on hold for an opera, The Barber of Seville, to sing the title character. And uh, the contract, I'll say, was worth $10,000 for three weeks. Um, and I only say that to say what I'm about to say is being on hold means that they haven't issued a contract yet, but we, you know, they'll tell your agent, we want this singer from this date to this day and make sure they don't take anything else. Cause we are going to hire them. We just haven't gotten our contact contracts ready. So I was on hold for maybe six months and then six months before the show, my agent calls and I'm standing in the living room with Chandra and Quinn right in front of me. And my agent at the time, Bernard, calls and said, I'm sorry, uh, they're taking you off hold and they're going to hire someone else. And so I looked, I, I, you know, I was a little shocked. I hung up the phone. And right then I knew I looked at Chandra and Quinn, who was, you know, just a toddler then. And I thought, now how am I going to replace that $10,000 for three weeks work? And I realized that this gentleman who cast this show had the power to decide whether I could feed my family or not. And I remember that was not the most comfortable feeling. So this, this thing that is your passion that you love, that you've done for a long time starts to become less romantic when, you know, your bills have to be paid by it. And I imagine golf is the same way. As much as you love golf, if you're struggling around to make a cut and your things, finances are tight, I'm sure golf is not the most enjoyable sport at that moment. Is that a fair statement? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, golf is so, um, you know, not not unlike other things, but golf is so difficult already in the state of mind that you have to be in to perform at a high level or even a medium level in golf. Um, Obviously, everything else going on in your life affects that of you getting into that state of mind. So the more pressure you have on you financially, um, it just makes it ex- uh, exceptionally harder. Yes. Uh, for, for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, this gig in a way was, um, it was just a, it was great to be on the road again, even though I hated being away from my family, but kind of to be back in the mix, doing it at a level um, that I'm used to and that I enjoy, you know, it's, it's a nice, respite it's a it's a great challenge to be able to um to go out and still perform at a high level and enjoy the rehearsal process um and all that but i'm i'm much more gratified now that i've diversified my portfolio one might say um and that all of my income doesn't um doesn't have that pressure on just performing and i also as i moved into this new um situation where i'll be casting singers and um bringing them here, I hope that I remember for the long term what it's like to be a singer. And I hope I won't make that same kind of mistake where it wasn't personal, I'm sure. But um, if you got a singer on hold and unless there's something drastic has changed, just give them the contract and hire the other guy next time. Um, Right. And to try to remember what it's actually like to um, be a singer and need work and want work and enjoy work. Uh, and have a little bit of, um, you know, thought about that when you're casting, when you're doing it, understand what people are going through. Corey, now's a good time to plug your website so people can go hear you sing. 
Well, it's uh, CoreyMcKern.net. And I'm going to be honest, my buddy sent me the picture from the website. And he was like, who is this guy? And I said, I made that joke I like to make. I said, oh, it's, uh, don't worry, it's Faces of Meth. And he said, it looks like Faces of Tacos. <laughs> so what, you're saying you're one of your bigger stages in, uh, in your... No, no, now. <laughs> oh, wait, the, the, that oh, picture was taken in 2009. I had dark hair and I was uh, a little younger. So it's probably time for an update. But uh, Yeah, maybe throw a new picture on there, would you? Yeah, you can go to the YouTube, whatever. If you want to hear me sing... Uh, there's ways to find it. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Well, you told me a little bit of your story there trying to get out of New York, um, and it probably worked out good for you because it made it easier for you to be leaving New York. Well, I'll um, wrap it up with this then. Uh, <laughs> I used to say when I lived in New York, when I would go for – sometimes I went for a long time. Like I used to sing in Santa Fe. It would be 12-week contract, and I would come back. And I could always count on New York some kind of reentry, like something crazy happening. And uh, sure enough – we're we closed our show in New York on February 13th and I was flying home that night. So I, I go to the subway with my giant suitcase, my carry on bag, my backpack, all this stuff, which is already a pain in the ass in New York. You know, I got to drag it all down the stairs of the apartment, drag it out on the street. This is a Sunday. Saturday was like beautiful, 55 degrees and sunny. And then Sunday it's like freezing and snowing. So I'm, 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 carrying dragging the suitcase through the snow and now i'm hot because i'm walking is a nightmare so i get down this drag my suitcase down the stairs finally get on a subway and uh, the car's not too crowded and i look over to my left and there's a homeless woman that looks like she's sort of moved in like she's got a whole like three seats with tons of stuff and i was like oh well fine you know that's what you see it's cold and uh suddenly i see out of the my periphery at the corner of my eye something rolling down. I look over and she's rolling down her stockings and in her left hand, she holds up like she's presenting it. I was like, what is that? And I realized, Oh my God, that's a tampon. Um, and so this, this woman was about to, um, yeah, have a personal moment on the train. And I was sitting eight feet from her and I thought right then, um, Yep, time to head back to Pensacola. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, I've lived here for twelve years. I've never seen uh, that before. Um, so, yeah, I flew home that night, and uh, we'll see when I go back. I know we always talk about weather. I know you said it was pouring snow on you, but it had been nice weather leading into that, right? Yeah, uh, nice-ish. I always yeah, feel well, like, and you probably felt the same way. Like, can't you just wait one hour till I get out of town and start pouring snow? Like, really? Like one hour? Well, that's the thing about New York is you're just in it. I mean, we also there was a Saturday we had rehearsal early, like nine thirty or ten, and it snowed all night, like ten inches. And so if you go out first thing in the morning, none of the sidewalks have been swept, the streets haven't been swept, the subways are running but barely. And so you're just like, I can't describe you. I felt like Luke Skywalker in uh, Empire Strikes Back at the beginning in that snow scene. Like I'm just wandering in eight inches of snow my uh, up to my knees almost trying to get to Brooklyn. And it's just, it's a, you know, living in New York is like a pioneer life. Like you got to go forage for food. You got to get out and walk. Um, and there's a lot to be said about that. There's some you know, by the time you get back to your apartment at night in New York and you sit down on the couch, you have earned your seat. 
Yes, I was lucky enough to be up there uh, to visit you several times in New York, and um, I describe New York as the perfect place to visit for three days. <laughs> yeah. And then get the hell out of there because it's it is it's fun. It's fun to be. It was fun to be there with you, especially you being living there and being a local and us not doing kind of the touristy stuff. But I could see that getting old. I mean, I can remember you getting on me one day about driving around a parking lot looking for a closer parking spot. You said, dude, just park out here. Jesus, I get up and go to the grocery store. I got to walk six blocks. You're worried <laughs> about walking good. four spots. And I still use that. I'm not too concerned about parking spaces anymore because it's like really it won't hurt me to walk another hundred feet yeah well that sounds like a rude thing i said i apologize um <laughs> um well i've got a whole list of them don't worry hey i did you know i met um two of my former students at a uh my students said oh yeah i know a great bar um it's at you know 79th between broadway and columbus it's called blondie's I was like, man, I've been going to Blondie's since you were ten years old. Uh, you know, That's and Blondie's funny. is a sports bar that I used to watch Indiana basketball games at, and we went several times when you were there. Yes, and I like when you said that we don't do we we never did touristy things except for we ate fried lasagna at Planet Hollywood. <laughs> we and did. We used to go to the Applebee's for happy hour. Other well, than that, though, it was very local. But the only reason we went to the Applebee's was because they actually had decent drink specials. I mean, it was like right off, uh, you know, we, we we stumbled in there somehow because we were getting sick of looking for any place else. And re- you remember they had that bar right there on the street. Yeah. Friendly bartenders yeah. with cheapish drinks for New York City. And I yeah. think there was a jukebox in there we were playing. Yeah, that sounds amazing, actually. It was fabulous. I should have gone back. I well, that, should have discovered. I should have invented the Applebee song. That, that's, that's, that's right. That's the other thing about New York. It goes without saying, but it is prohibitively expensive. Um, and I think when I left, one of the last things before I left New York for good, I went to a bar and I was like, I'll have a Bud Light draft. And the guy was like, that'll be $13. And I was like, and this was 12 years ago. Right. Like, you know, and that was kind of a, it was a nice bar or whatever, but 12, 13, 12, $13 for a Bud Light draft. I mean, it's insane. Yeah. We certainly had some sticker shock on some drinks, among other things in New York City. That's for sure. Yeah, for sure. But it was, it was fun to be back for a little bit and uh, a little harder, you know, like I said, with, uh, you know, it's just hard being away from your children for that amount of time and, and your wife and uh, all that. All right. Well, I want to thank everybody for listening to today. Um, we will be coming with you, uh, coming to you with new episodes every Thursday. Um, don't forget, follow me on Twitter at Colin McKern and please email the show golf drinking life at gmail.com. Corey, anything else to add? That's it. Good to talk to you. All right, bud. Have a good week, and I look forward to our show next week. Sounds good. Take care, everybody. You just got to keep living, man. L-I-V-I-N.